How many are happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Can you say amen? amen. God is so good. And it's so wonderful to be gathered together in person, face yeah. to face. Some of us have forgotten how important this time is. Some of us are not yet comfortable to come live. And if that's you, we totally get you. We totally understand. And we want you to stay home until you feel comfortable to come live. Yeah. Others of us have just become lazy. <laughs> you ain't got no problem going to the gym. Got no problem going to the grocery store. Got no problem going to the bank. But church, I think I must stay home. And I just want to say, the Lord rebukes you. <laughs> I have a simple message for you. This is our covenant friendship series that we're calling Together Again. Yeah. And we're talking about the importance of our being together again, yeah. the significance and the power of our being together again. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, yeah. for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God. Hey, y'all stop talking out there while I'm preaching. We can hear you in here. <laughs> I'm going to start that again. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. Yeah. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. When I was a little kid in Sunday school, we used to sing this as a song. You remember, Charles? Beloved, let us love one another. Love one another. Y'all remember? Yeah. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. First John 4, 7 and 8. <laughs> One of the most familiar passages in the Bible, ending with this cataclysmic statement of who God is. Yeah, yeah. God is love. Search the Bible and find me any other verse in the Bible, any other statement in the Bible that defines God in one word. Do a search of the phrase, God is and find me any other one-word statement that defines who he is. God is love. It's the only one-word statement in the Bible that defines him. The audacity of John to define God in one word. And to make this one word the litmus test for determining whether we know him or not. If you don't love, if you don't love, you don't know God. If you don't love, I don't care how many tongues you speak in, how many songs you know, how much money you put in the offering plate, you don't know God. 
one of the most familiar verses and one of the most familiar statements, but one of the most oft misunderstood. Because what we don't understand about the nature of love, we are all Westerners and we tend to flow in this Western philosophical, Greek philosophical mindset. We don't even realize how much we've been influenced by Greek philosophy. That to us, our definition of love comes from this whole Greek philosophical concept. That love is either a set of emotions, that love is tolerance, that love is this ideal, that love is the way you feel about somebody, the way you experience someone's presence. So much so that we have defined love as an experience to the degree that we apply it to other things in life that we actually like. I love donuts. Fried chicken. Specifically, Korean-style fried chicken. Yangnyum chicken with that spicy sauce on it. Uh. Sauce, not sauce. Sauce. And then you say to your wife, I love you, baby. But you just said you love chicken. We're so used to defining love as an experience, as an affection, as a set of feelings that we completely misunderstand what it means to say that God is love. We think that what he's actually saying is that God is a bunch of good feelings. That God is this symbolic or ideal set of affections. And that if you have these feelings and affections, then you must know God. That anyone who has these feelings or affections for one another therefore knows God because God is these feelings or affections. But that's not what it actually says. If you actually look at the context of the passage, yeah. he says, he who does not love does not know God. Meaning that the love that defines God is concrete, not symbolic. It's concrete, not philosophical. Let me explain. Pastor Jeremy started talking about this last week, that there's actually three different Greek words used in the New Testament that are translated love. The first is phileo, which has to do with the love that we have as friends. Friendly, brotherly love. Phileo is kick it, par kick it partner love. You know, it's that your homie love. It's like my dog love. That's phileo. I just really enjoy hanging out with you. And then, of course, there's eros, which is Romantic love. It's the kind of love that a husband has for his wife. It's that, that desire, that deep, passionate, burning desire. But then there's agape. Agape is unconditional love. Now, when we're talking about biblical interpretation, there's actually multiple levels. The first level is etymology, meaning you can look at the particular words in a particular verse, study the origin of those words, and that will give you one, one kind of level of meaning and understanding of what's actually being communicated. So when we look at this phileo, eros, 
and agape, that's one level of understanding that we could say, here's the etymology of each of those words, and it gives us a different nuance of the biblical meaning of love. Here in 1 John 4, 7 and 8, he says, God is agape. He is not eros. He is not phileo. And so we can take agape and say, this unconditional love that, is, that God defines himself as, it's a higher level of love than both eros and phileo. It's unconditional. But there's a deeper level of meaning than etymology. To go beyond etymology, we must start by, set, by acknowledging and understanding that the New Testament documents were written in Greek, but the, the majority of their writers were Hebrew-speaking, Aramaic-speaking, and not Greek. They translated immediately their thoughts into Greek because Koine Greek was the common language that everyone could understand. But they, they were not swimming in a Greek philosophical world. They were swimming in a Hebrew world. If you really want to understand what's behind the terminology in the New Testament, you must not simply stop with the Greek. You've got to go back to the Hebrew and say, what Hebrew term or concept from the Old Testament does this translate? So that word God is love... The final destination of that, the origin of that, is not the Greek concept of agape even, but the Greek concept of agape as used by the New Testament writers translates the Hebrew concept of chesed. Say that, chesed. No, you got to If you don't feel like you need to spit afterwards, you didn't say it right. Chesed. What is chesed? It's translated in the old King James Version, steadfast love. Psalm 36, verse 5 and following. Your steadfast love extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like majestic mountains, and your wisdom like the depths of the sea. Both high and low among men find refuge under the shadow of your wings. You give them to drink from your river of delights. They feed on the abundance of your household, for with you is the river of life, and in your light we see light. Your steadfast love, your covenantal love, when John says God is love, he does not mean God is a feeling of sugar and spice and everything nice. He means that God is steadfast love. Yeah. God is covenantal love. Yeah. Your steadfast love extends to the heavens. What is steadfast love? What is covenantal love? And how do we see that in the very nature of God? I know I'm taking you on a little journey today. Stick with me. Keep the camera moving. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This is the Shema, or the Shema. This is the core. If you asked any, any, any Jewish person, what is the core of, of the Tanakh, of the, this, what we would call the Old Testament scriptures? They would say the Shema. And the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Achad. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. There's another guttural, achad. Say that, achad. Aha. Aha. It's not, no, it's not aha. <laughs> that, that's uh, uh, coming to America. Aha, where's the spoon? No, that's not. <laughs> achad. Achad. It means one. Yeah. But it is not a one of singularity. It is a plural one. It is a one of unity, not a one of singularity. It is a one of unity, not a one of individuality. The Lord our God is one, but he is a plural one. Where do we get this from? How about Genesis 1:26? Let us make man in our own image. Let us make man in 
our own image and in our own likeness and let them have dominion. Notice that there's a plurality. Let us make man. Who is, who is saying let us make man? God. Who is God? He is a plural one. He is a community. When John says God is love, he means that he is at his very nature, in his very being, covenantal, steadfast love, which means that he is eternally existent in a community of three persons that we discover in the New Testament, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the bond between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the essence that we call God. At his, in his very nature, you cannot extract the covenantal love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and still think you understand who God is. God is that covenantal bond of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Augustine, the great theologian of the 4th century, would say that the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Holy Spirit is the vinculum amoris, the bond of love between the Father and the Son. You want to understand God, you've got to understand this. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Holy Spirit is the bond of love between the Father and the Son. If you want to understand God, you must understand that they are eternally committed to one another, eternally bound to one another in a covenantal bond of love. Yeah. And then he says, let us make man in our own image and likeness. And we talk about the image and likeness of God that we find in creation, we find in humankind, and immediately we think of rationality or we think of creativity, all of these Greek philosophical concepts and say, this is the image of God, rationality, creativity, uh, dominion, uh, or leadership, or government, or all of these things that we prize. But you forget that he says, let us, community, Covenant, let us make man in our own image and likeness. And when he said, let us make man, it was not gender. It was, it was humankind. It was genus, not gender. Let us make humankind in our own image and in our own likeness and let them together have dominion. Shared dominion. And so God creates a man gender, and then says, it's not good. Yeah. Isn't that interesting that he creates sun, moon, and stars and says, it is good. He creates the heavens and the earth and says, it is good. He separates the sea from the dry land and says, it is good. Separates light from darkness and says, it is good. Creates man and says, it is not good. Hmm. What's not good? It's not good for him to be alone. He's actually not our image and likeness yet because he's a he and not an our and not a we. Yeah. He only experiences singularity. He has not experienced covenant yet. Apart from covenant community, apart from covenantal love, yeah. apart from covenant, he is not our image and likeness yet. I was going through my old notes and I found this sermon that was preached by Sharon Lim Ortiz a few years ago. And she talked about the creation of Eve and how God brings Eve to Adam in the garden. And she said, at that very moment, what Adam looked upon for the first time was the image and likeness of God. Because he was the only one created in the image of likeness of God, but he couldn't see himself. And when he saw Eve, he saw the image and likeness of God and said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You and I are the same. You and I are one. This is it. This You and me, we are together. And what God first creates when he brings humankind into existence is covenant 
community. Notice he does not start with a parent and a child. He starts with a husband and a wife. The highest level of covenant community is husband and wife. This is the paradigmatic human relationship is husband and wife. I've had three consecutive weddings in the last three weeks, and the first one is right over there. Anthony and Issa, give it up for them. Yesterday was Jaysheen and Angela up in Sonoma. We are so excited for them. There's been so many COVID weddings, it's so exciting. Now, when Eve and Adam come together and the covenant is established, now God says, this is it. This is our image. This is our likeness. Humankind, the creation is complete because the covenant is complete. Follow me. Now, you take the Old Testament and you take the New Testament. What is that that distinction actually about? It's actually about two different acts of creation. If you take the drama of human history from God's perspective, you could break it into two acts. Act one is called creation. Act two is called new creation. Why does there need to be act one and act two? Because something entered the world at the beginning of act one called sin. And sin was that which actually doomed the original creation. Without God's intervention, sin entering the world in Act 1 would have ended us. And so God immediately begins to plan Act 2. Even before the garden saga is over, God already speaks a prophetic word about the woman and says, the seed of this woman one day, his heel is going to crush the head of the serpent. Meaning, God already knew, I'm getting ready to send my son Jesus into the world. He's going to absorb the impact of sin. He's going to reverse the consequences of sin, and he's going to bring about a new creation. So in the original creation, and remember, creation, the pattern of creation is always, always, always image and likeness of God. When God creates, he always creates in his image and likeness. And so in the original creation, the image and likeness of God is male and female, husband and wife. Now, Jesus comes in the world. Act 2 begins. This is why I love the book of John. How does Genesis begin, the original creation? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You go to the book of John, how does the new creation begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that was made. He's summarizing the original creation. Now he goes to new creation, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now God, through his son Jesus Christ, is going to inaugurate the new creation. How? By making man in his own image and likeness. And how does he do that? He creates covenant community. The church. When he begins his ministry, what's the first thing he does? He walks down to the sea and he sees Andrew and Simon says, come follow me. And then he walks a little further. He sees James and John, and he says, come follow me. Why does he do this? Why not just go around healing folk? After all, we don't need the quote-unquote institutional organized church. We don't need organized religion. We don't need a group of disciples who are committed and in covenant with one another. We just need a loosely knit worldwide, invisible body of believers who are all connected to Jesus Christ, even if they don't give a crap about one another. (laughs) 
Beloved, let us love one another. And we still hear that as, let us feel good about one another. Wow. Let us be tolerant of one another. People say it all the time. I'm, I don't want to be in a place where people tolerate me. I want to be in a place where people celebrate you. Well, why do people have to tolerate you? What are you doing? <laughs> if you just feel barely tolerated, maybe you need to look in the mirror and figure out what are you doing where people have to, oh, my God, I'm just going to tolerate this person. <laughs> wait, 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 What did I say? If you can't accept me at my worst... You don't deserve me at my best. Well, how bad is your worst? <laughs> I mean, hold on a second. <laughs> Beloved, let us love one another. Covenant faithfulness. Steadfast love. Your steadfast love extends to the heavens. What is God's steadfast love? The fact that no matter how many times we messed up, he didn't give up on humankind. Without steadfast love, he wouldn't have sent Jesus. He would have just said, screw them all. <laughs> yeah. Let them all die. Without steadfast love, there would have been no Noah in the ark. God would have drowned us all and started over. There would have been no covenant community. The, the people of God, the people of Israel that carried the covenants and the prophets and the law and all. Just kill them all. <laughs> you know Why? Covenant, steadfast love. I don't give up on my kids. I don't give up on my creation. If it goes awry, I bring it back. Covenant love. I will not leave you. Your steadfast love. Why does the psalmist sing that? Your steadfast love extends to the heavens. Why? Because without that steadfast love that extends to the heavens, yeah, yeah. you would have wiped us all out a long time wow. ago. How terrifying would it be to hear somebody say, you know what, I'm leaving this church and look back and it's Jesus. <laughs> too many problems in this church. This church is too messed up. Too many hypocrites in this church. And the only person who actually has the right to leave that church, who has the right to judge it because he's not a hypocrite himself, is the one person who actually promised, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Yeah. Wow. Covenant faithfulness. Yeah. Yeah. And so Jesus calls his group of disciples, yeah. inaugurates the new creation by creating a new covenant community. Wow. And then what does he teach them? A new commandment I give you. Wow. Love one another. Yeah. Not feel good about one another. Yeah. Steadfast love. Wow. Covenant love. I, I, you know, I, I, I do this. I, when I do premarital counseling, I teach this to the couples. You know what I hate? Can I just be real with you? I, no, no, no. I'm, I'm not going to say that way. You, <laughs> you know what I started doing? Huh. When couples want to write their own vows... I say, okay, that's cool, but then I'm going to lead you in the traditional vows afterwards. All you got to do is say, I do. I make it easier for them. But let me tell you why. Because a lot of times when couples write their own vows, here's what I hear a lot of. This is not a judgment of any this is actually This is actually a cool part of the wedding. People love this part, but we still got to do the real vows afterwards. Why? Because here's what I hear a lot of. I promise to always do the dishes. No, you don't. 
I promise to always wake up before you do. Who cares? I mean, even if you do keep that promise, who cares? I promise to never say no. You know that's a lie. I promise to always let you choose the restaurant. So what? This is number one, nobody even believes you. Especially anybody who's been married for more than, I don't know, 45 minutes. It's like, that, that's going to go out the window about the first month. But number two, even if you keep all those promises, so what? You know what? I want to hear some real vows. Like, this would be real vows. Listen, we're going to have some times that are going to suck. And matter of fact, there are going to be days when I'm so mad at you, I don't even want to look at you. And I'll probably even find myself fantasizing about divorcing you and marrying somebody else. You're going to irritate me to the core. And I'm going to irritate you to the core. And there's going to be days when you wish you didn't marry me too. But here's my promise. I will never leave you. That's that's the the vow. I will never leave you. I will love, honor, and cherish you for better or for worse. Meaning there's going to be some worse. For richer or for poorer means there's going to be some poorer. In sickness and in health means there's going to be some sickness. I will never leave you. The only thing that will separate you and I is death. That is covenant faithfulness. Covenant faithfulness is resilient enough to absorb a multitude of sins. That's covenant faith. When Jesus said to his disciples, love one another. This is the new commandment. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, John 13, 35, that you love one another. What they're going to see is your covenant faithfulness to one another, that you take a licking and keep on ticking, that you have conflict, but you come back together again, that you don't like what one another says, but you come back together again, that you trip over one another, but you come back together again. And here's the crazy thing in the body of Christ. Can I just tell you the truth? The people that I'm closest to, are often, most, no, always, the people I've had the deepest conflict with. The people that I'm closest to are the people that I've had the deepest conflict with. You know why? Because when you walk through conflict with someone and they're still there, that makes a statement. That makes a statement. The statement is our love for one another, our commitment for one another, our vow to one another is deeper than our conflict. Conflict can't kill it. The fact that we don't get each other can't kill it. The fact that we don't understand one another can't kill it. I never promised that we would never have conflict. What I promised is I won't leave you. What was the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness all about? Turn these stones to bread if you're the son of God. Throw yourself down if you're the son of God. You want all these nations of the world? Bow down and worship me. I'll give them to you. What were all three of those temptations? You know what those temptations were actually about? Trying to break up the covenant between the father and the son. It was the enemy's attempt to destroy the covenant community that is the Godhead. Do you know what the enemy was actually saying when he said, turn these stones to bread? The Father ain't thinking about you. The Father has forgotten about you. 
The Father is not providing for you. The enemy was trying to insert in the mind of Jesus himself the lie that the covenant was broken. He wanted Jesus to be there in the desert after 40 days of fasting thinking, the Father doesn't care about me. The Father hasn't even called me. The Father hasn't visited me. The Father cares about other people more than me. Jesus, his covenant to the Father meant, I refuse to believe that the Father has abandoned me and I will not allow my own pain and my own hurt and my own sense of forsakenness to convince me that the Father has abandoned me. What we saw when Jesus stood up against the temptation in the wilderness was the resilience of the covenant. The resilience of the covenant. And the resilience of the covenant was Jesus simply refused to feel unloved in a trying situation. Mm -mm. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. And then I'll end with this, because I've gone over time already. John 17, 21. Jesus prays a prayer, not just for his 12, but he said, I'm praying this for everyone who will believe through their testimony. Meaning he prayed it for all of us. He prayed it for the worldwide body of Christ. He prayed it for every local church. He prayed it for every Christian. And here's what he prayed, that they may be one that they may be one. What's behind that? Ahad. Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Ahad. He said that they may be one. It is the unity of oneness, not of singularity. The unity of oneness, not of individuality. That they may be one. He didn't pray that they might be individualists. He prayed that they might be one, united in covenant faithfulness the same way. He said, even as I am in you and you are in me, I want them to be one the way we are one. The way we're committed to one another 100%. I want them to learn how to be committed to one another 100% even when they walk through times where they don't understand, when they have to come into the garden and say, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, I'm committed to you. Even when they have to hang on the cross and say, why have you forsaken me? But even still, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I'm still committed to you through thick and thin. I'm committed to you. Let them be one. That's his prayer. That's his prayer as he heads to the cross. Not let them all give bigger offerings. Let them be one. Not let them all join a ministry. Let them be one. Because you can join a ministry and still be divided in your heart. You can even join a CG, a community group, and still be divided in your heart. He says, let them be one. It's not even the oneness of agreement. It's not even the oneness of I see everything the way you see it. I agree with everything you say. That's not it. It's the oneness of covenant. It's the oneness of... Because let me tell you something. There's no one in this room that, who I have disagreed with more fervently than that woman right there. But yet there's no one in this room with whom I have a deeper covenant than that woman right there. Our covenant is not based on agreement. It's based on covenant faithfulness that says, I'm going to walk with you. And if we have disagreements, we're going to talk through them. But we're going to keep respecting one another. We're going to keep loving one another. And we're going to keep coming back together again. Why? Because this is covenant. This is the image and likeness of God. Your steadfast love extends to the heavens. Beloved, let us 
love one another. Let us have steadfast love for one another. Let us walk in covenant faithfulness with one another. For covenant faithfulness, for steadfast love is of God. And everyone who has steadfast love, the kind that comes from Jesus Christ, knows God, is born of God and knows God. But he who does not have steadfast love does not know God. For God is steadfast love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today I pray that you would silence the voice of the enemy who seeks to bring a wedge to disrupt the covenant faithfulness of brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you would form us into your own image and likeness here at Lineage. And your own image and likeness is the image and likeness of steadfast love. Your steadfast love extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like majestic mountains. Your wisdom is like the depths of the sea. So we come to you today for an infusion of steadfast love. Steadfast. Unwavering. Unrelenting. A steadfast love that does not give up. I'm committed to you. I'm with you heart and soul. I'll fight to the death next to you, even if we don't agree. I'm committed to you, not to your thoughts. I'm committed to you, not to your philosophy. I'm committed to you. I'm committed to you. Why? Because I'm committed to Jesus. Jesus is the one who said, if you can't love your brother whom you can see, If you cannot have steadfast love for your brother whom you can't see, then you cannot have steadfast love for God whom you cannot see. So, Father, I pray today in the name of Jesus that you would release among us your steadfast love. Hallelujah.